Remain standing and grab your copy of God's Word and turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. It's in the Lord's providence that we are here continuing the same theme that we saw this morning as being lights in this world. Here now as God speaks to you through His holy, inspired, and life-giving Word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as light in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, what a name to call our Lord Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. Lord, we do thank you that we might call upon him, that he would even speak to us in this place this evening. Uh, through his holy word. Lord, we do call upon you uh, to speak with us, to give us the clarity of eyes uh, that we might behold wondrous things in your law. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it's not uncommon for parents to give to their children the kind of motivation for obedience that is something to the effect of, remember, you represent your family wherever you go, or perhaps maintain a good reputation for the family name. I remember hearing a a pastor a few months ago talking about the kind of exhortation that he would give to his children before uh, they would run at these track meets. And so he would say, without fail, run fast. I love you. And remember, you're a de young and that was his exhortation. Perhaps, parents, you have told your children something similar. Well, the reason why I tell you this is because Paul's appeal carries with it the same kind of heart as remembering the family name. And what we find in Philippians 12 through 18, him saying, reflecting upon all of the glorious things about the gospel and saying to them, keep up the good work. Remember who you are. Remember who you belong to. Keep growing in Christ. Uh, But what we want to see is that it's even more personal than just that. He calls them his beloved and that they are to keep obeying even in his absence. They are to make him proud. I think it's essential to keep these things in mind here because we can often approach Paul's letters as though they are uh, impersonal theological disputations, uh, teaching some grand doctrine, and he has no real connection to the church. Uh, But these are personal letters. He knows this church. He loves this church. And so he's writing to them as if they were his children that bear the same family name of Christ as them. And really, it's a continuation of the appeal that he gave in chapter 1, verse 27, 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. Paul says to this church, make me proud that I have not run the race in vain. So with that in mind, we want to look at three personal appeals that we find here in Philippians chapter 2, and that encourages the church to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the first appeal we want to see is growing in Christ. Paul wants them to keep growing in Christ. Second, we want to see that he wants them to be shining for Christ. And then lastly, he wants to find them joyful in Christ. So first, growing in Christ. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, Paul says to this church, I have seen you grow mightily as a church. I've seen you come out of pagan Philippi with all of its pride. I've seen you be entered into the church of Jesus Christ. Continue growing. Keep going on. I've seen you grow. And I know there's much more for you, even in my absence. I want to see you mature even more. Don't let my absence stop you. It has that force of a parent sending their child off to college, knowing that they've done their best to raise this child in the faith, that they've spent countless years with this child, and now they know it's on them uh, to keep up the faith. I remember... Uh, when I was in high school, my dad would often drop me off at school each morning, and he would always say the same thing. He would say, learn all the good stuff, none of the bad stuff, but take time to pray. Each and every morning he would do this, and then he would end it by uh, giving me a kiss on the forehead right in front of all of my friends. But what Paul wants this church to understand is that they are responsible for working out their salvation. Now, this might be a seemingly confusing thing for him to say. Uh, perhaps uh, we might think that works and salvation really have nothing to do with, another, with each other. Uh, but he's not saying work for your salvation. He is saying work out your salvation. Uh, we must know that important distinction. We're not working for our salvation. We're not trying to earn our favor with God, but we're working out of the favor that we've received from God in the gospel. And we must remember the glories of the gospel that tells us uh, to put off the old man and put on the new in Jesus Christ. But notice also that he adds that it's to be done with fear and trembling. Now, if it was working for our salvation, it would mean something altogether different. The fear would be, have we done enough? The trembling would be uh, looking back on our past sins, thinking that they weigh us down. Uh, but for Paul, it's working out our salvation. And this belongs to a whole different order of fear and trembling. This is gospel fear and trembling. Because of the mercies of Christ, fear is that reverence and honor that we give to our Savior who loved us and gave his life for us. A trembling is depending upon his strength, uh, not presuming upon him, but of course, not overly confident in our own actions, realizing that we need him each and every day. Uh, perhaps you've heard statements related to the doctrine of sanctification that go something like this. 
let go and let God. Or perhaps uh, true sanctification is total surrender. Uh, But we know that the scriptures tell a different story when it comes to our own growing in Jesus Christ. The Puritans would call it um, a holy sweat needs to be employed in our sanctification. That we are to actually work hard by using the means of grace, by taking advantage of all the mercies that God has supplied to us in Jesus Christ, by using the church uh, to mature in him. Uh, Perhaps a better way to say it out of this verse is what J.I. Packer once commented and said, the theme is not let go and let God, but it is to trust God and get going. And the reason why we could be called to such a task that we are to uh, cooperate with God in our own sanctification is because He is working in us. Look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You know, the proper theological term for this is synergism. That in our justification, it's monergistic, meaning that it is only God who acts on behalf of us. He justifies He calls us righteous by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. But in sanctification, we are working together with God. We are active, responding to Him. But He is the energy. He is the power driving the engine. He is the one giving us strength. And so Paul's appeal right here leaves no room for complacency for the Philippians. They can't think to themselves, well, we are a pretty good church. We got our theology all correct, and therefore we can get lazy. We've done all we needed to do in our own sanctification. And no, he's saying, even in my absence, be all the more diligent to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So it's growing in Christ. But his second peel that he wants you to see is that it's shining for Christ. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in this world. Now he gives a metaphor, a metaphor of light, similar to what we saw earlier this morning. And it's a powerful, powerful one that we often forget when it comes to the church's relationship to the world. Uh, There's a public nature to the kind of reputation that the church is to have in this world. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said he wouldn't give a rusty nail for a religion uh, that doesn't speak publicly about Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul's saying, don't take your little light of mine and let it shine only in your own little homes, but let it shine before men so that they might give glory to God the Father. Remember all of those sayings of Jesus that you are salt and light, that you are a city set upon a hill. And don't forget that you have what this world most desperately needs, light. Now, we don't want to get this metaphor wrong. Children, you can think about it in two different ways. You can think about the light that the moon gives at night, perhaps on a really dark night, and there's a full moon. It's shining, and it's drawing everyone's attention to it. It's beautiful. Everyone wants to look at it. But that's not the kind of light we are to give in this world. It's more like the sun that shines into the darkness and scatters it away. 
that surely no one would look directly at the sun, but that they would look at what the sun is illuminating. And of course, we understand that Jesus Christ is the true light of the world and that our task as witnesses is to be a witness to Jesus Christ. Our lives should be lived in such a way that we are giving glory to Jesus Christ, that people must look to him and see that there's something different. We are to be led by the Spirit and put the floodlight on Jesus Christ himself. And there are two ways that this works, as Paul points out here in these verses. At first, it's by our conduct. And second, it's by our speech. You know, with something so high and glorious as Paul's vision of the church here, we would think that he would talk about uh, the kinds of things we should be doing. Uh, But yet, he starts off by saying what we shouldn't be doing. How are we to be lights in this world? Well, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Of course, we might view this as a small thing. Grumbling and disputing, what does that have to do with our public relation to the world? But we know that this is something that often obscures the light of Christ, isn't it? Infighting, grumbling, complaining, arguing, murmuring in the background. These sins seem to be the preeminent sins of Christ's people in every age. Wasn't it grumbling and disputing that marked those early years of the wilderness wandering? In Exodus 17, the Lord even names a place after the grumbling and the quarreling of his people. And there's a place in Exodus 17 that we could translate easily as Murmursville and Grumblesville. But you could trace this theme all the way through the Old Testament and end up in the New Testament. And who are those characters that are constantly disputing amongst themselves? Well, it's the Pharisees who love to quarrel, who love to argue with one another, who love to talk bad about other people. And Paul, of course, has to deal with this very sin in Corinth. And he reminds them how serious of a sin it is. He reminds them how destructive it can be. But it seems like in our 21st century that we've become proficient at grumbling and arguing. Grumbling about leaders. Grumbling about worship styles. Engaging in backroom talk. Rather than doing all things without grumbling and disputing, we do all things with grumbling and disputing. But Paul presses this upon the Philippian church and says, this should not be your reputation in this world. While living in a crooked and twisted generation, we should be found to be like Daniel, who was so righteous, so blameless, and that the satraps had to find another way to entrap him. And they had to use the law of God against him to be able to get him. It was in the 16th century, there was a rumor that Martin Luther was speaking ill of John Calvin. And so some of the followers of John Calvin uh, spoke to Calvin and thought that they could somehow get him to respond in kind. But all Calvin could say was, let Luther call me devil if he please. I will never say of him, but that he is the most dear and valiant servant of the Lord. It's the world that deals in terms of grumbling and disputing. But this ought not to be the way of the church. And this, of course, is but one piece of how we are to live as God's beloved children in this world. It's our conduct, but we must also consider it's our speech. 
Look at verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The idea of holding fast really has two ideas to it. Yes, we are to work hard with the holy sweat, to work out of our own salvation, but we are also to have a tight grip on the word of life, on Christ himself. We are to draw our strength from him. We are to depend upon him, and we are to look and hope towards his second coming. But of course, there's another idea that's presented here in this idea of holding fast to the word of life. You could easily translate it as holding forth the word of life. How are we to shine as lights in this crooked and twisted generation? By holding out Jesus Christ. By holding out the true light of the world. And that's how we live in a manner worthy of our calling. We speak about him. We tell others about him. And that's what Paul's envisioning here, that they would, of course, persevere in the faith and so that he would know that all of his labors on their behalf haven't been done in vain. But he also wants them to have a testimony of Jesus Christ, to speak Christ into that culture of Philippi that depended upon themselves with such pride and arrogance. And so Paul says to the Philippians, you know what will make me proud on the day of Christ? If I find you to be holding fast to Jesus Christ, that you're holding him out to this world in love. And I wonder if Paul could look at your life and say something similar. On the day of Christ, would he be able to look into your own heart and the way that you have behaved in this crooked and twisted generation? Would he find someone who is holding fast to Jesus Christ, persevering amidst all of the suffering that you might face and holding him out to all those people around you. And so it's growing in Christ. It's shining for Christ. And then lastly, Paul would have them be joyful in Christ. A few years ago, I went on a backpacking journey with my dad and a friend of his. And we were climbing a pretty difficult stretch of about a thousand feet over a mile. And I remember kind of asking out loud to my dad's friend, why are we doing this? And I remember he got a kind of a, a sick grin on his face. And he said, I do this to beat my body. And I thought, that's a very strange source of joy for this man. that he likes to come out here and just uh, put himself through all of this agony. And of course, that was his source of joy in it. But for Paul, his source of joy was being spent entirely for the church of Christ. Look at verse 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And Paul picks up another metaphor here. He picks up an Old Testament metaphor of the sacrificial system of this drink offering. It wasn't to be a, a sin offering or an offering for guilt, but an offering for consecration of devotion to the Lord that would be offered. And what Paul means to communicate to the Philippians that even if God sees it fit that he would lose his life for the sake of Jesus Christ, He's glad for what it produces in the Philippians. It's a remarkable statement. And he's, in a way, returning back to that dilemma that he brought up in chapter 1. 
I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Yet this time he recognizes that there's even joy for the Philippians in his death. That if he's poured out on their behalf, he's glad that it's going to produce in them something great. Paul is showing them what unreserved devotion to Christ looks like. And he wants that lesson to be imprinted upon their mind. If it means suffering for the sake of Christ's name, so be it, says Paul. If it means dying in a martyr's death in Rome, so be it. As long as Jesus Christ is glorified, I rejoice. I rejoice what it brings out in your faith that you can see someone who does consecrate himself wholly unto the Lord. And in turn, he says to the Philippians, you should take part in the same joy that I have, that I belong to the Lord's service. Rejoice that Christ is honored in my death. Let that same joy mark your suffering, says Paul. It's a strange source of joy indeed. But when you belong to Jesus Christ, there is joy in the suffering. There is gladness in the grief. You know, he's obviously pulling from what he just said earlier about having the mind of Christ He understands that it was for the joy that was set before Christ that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. Paul is pulling from this imagery. He has that same mind of Christ now, and he understands that if he entrusts himself to the Lord, he could be in no better place, the place of true joy, the the place of lasting joy. And so he calls upon the church, look at the sincerity of, of his very own life. This isn't ivory tower theology for Paul. He knows that he's going to die, but he takes joy in it. He's glad for the sake of the Philippians and ultimately for the sake of Christ. I wonder if you know that kind of joy, that kind of joy that can be found only in suffering for Jesus Christ. Well, you can find that joy because Jesus Christ died for sinners. He died for people like you and me so that we might have life and life abundantly. You know, one of those figures from church history and that I've always been moved by his way of life in almost a Pauline sense that Paul, his kind of personal appeal to the Philippians is a man named John Payton. Uh, It's in his autobiography that he tells the story of his dad's influence on him at an early age, this kind of spiritual influence that marked most of his life. And he tells the story of when his dad took him uh, to the port for him to be able to go off to seminary. And this is a, a longer quote here, but I hope you will see the significance of it. He says, My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been yet but yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then. Whenever memory steals me away to the scene, his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. 
Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer and tears we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and when about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me, I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I had left him gazing after me. Waving my hat in adieu, I was around the corner and out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and sore to carry, for, carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him. And just at the moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me. And after he had gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face towards home, and began to return, his head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft, by the help of God, to live and act so as to never grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. I think the Philippians, upon reading this letter from Paul, knowing that he, of course, called them his beloved, and that he was joyful that he would die just so that it would produce in them a greater work of the gospel, that they would read that letter and say simply, may we live and act so as to never grieve or dishonor such an apostle like Paul. That was their personal connection that they had with this man, that God had done something great in Paul's life and he would do something great through Paul's life in the Philippians. But better, but much better, and don't we have to say, may we live in such a way to never grieve or dishonor a Savior like he has given us. Because that's the ultimate motivation behind all growth in Jesus Christ, that we have seen the glory of this Savior who gave himself up for us. May we live in a way that pleases him. May we live in a way that is worthy of his calling. And so be lights in this world. I think Paul could have said to this church in simple terms, work out your own salvation. Christ loves you. And remember, you shine as lights in this world. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed thank you for the great cloud of witnesses that you have set before us, that we may observe their manner of life and imitate them. We thank you for the Apostle Paul, but ultimately, Lord, we do thank you for Jesus Christ. And may we live and act in such a way to always please and honor him. And may we always work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, expecting you to work in us. Give us this help by the Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.